The podcast that you're about to hear contains acts of sex and violence. The hosts do not claim to be experts on the subjects that they present. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, welcome back to the Christmas Eve episode of Brutal Nation. I'm your host, Scott Alexander, and right across from me is the one, the only, the jolly Tammy Underwood. Say ho, ho, ho. <laughs> You're a ho, ho, ho. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, everybody. Did you get here today on your reindeer? Tammy bells, Tammy bells, Tammy all the way. <laughs> you know I don't like Christmas, so shut up. Oh, me either, but fuck it. Yeah, I know. <coughs> I was told I couldn't buy any gifts, but somebody else could. Whatever. I was forced into shit. All right, today, oh. boys and girls, I'm doing Mr. John Reginald Christie, a.k.a. the Rillington Place Strangler. Dun, dun, dun. Boom. <laughs> Did you fart? No, I said boom. Oh, that was me. Never mind. Ah, you sick fucker. Come with me and hear this tale of woe. For to the gallows an innocent man shall go. Hang him high, and then you will see the real killer helped to hang thee. Feel the pain of the family lost. For someone lied, and you paid the cost. Now you die with your family lost. Scott Alexander, die. You wrote that? I did, this morning. Wow, I'm a little impressed. That's why I get paid the big bucks for songwriting and shit. Yeah. I get inspired every once in a while. So Tammy and I were talking on the phone during one of our normal morning business meetings. discussing Every day. Every fucking day. Discussing who's going to do what for the show for the week. Mm-hmm. I asked her if she had anyone on her list for a Friday episode, and she gave me this guy. Because you wanted somebody sick. And twisted. I fucking did. And I found him. And I you. was not disappointed. Yeah. Well, as I read about him, uh, it made my skin crawl. Yeah, I made mine too when I heard about him. Oh, yeah. So let's talk about this monster. Yeah. I'm going to light a cigarette to do this shit. I probably need heroin. Uh, Probably. You probably need to get me some too. <laughs> John Reginald Christie was known to most people as Reggie as he grew up. He was born on April 8th of 1899. See how I see you did one mm-hmm. that was born? That's just, oh, oh, fuck. Okay, same year. Yeah. And he did died. Did they get in trouble around the same time, too? Maybe. We're going to find out. No. And he died July 16th of 1953. Yeah, 53. Okay. <coughs> Great. I got the hiccups now. Oh. He was active in London, England as a killer between 1943 and 1953. Oh, well, 1956 was, yeah. 53 is when he died? No, but 1956. Oh, 1956 is when my guy got caught. Ah, there you go. Okay, now I'm understanding how it connects. Okay. He was raised in Halifax, England, as well as West Riding of Yorkshire, England. Okay. Makes no fucking sense, but that's what they said. Well, you know, a lot of towns over there make no sense. I'm surprised it wasn't something on Shire. Fucking fact. Well, it is Yorkshire. Oh, okay. Yeah, you're right. There's always was. a Shire in there somewhere. Yeah. So I tried to find the name of his parents, uh, but I couldn't find their names. I 
The only thing I could find was he was born to a carpet designer and an amateur actress. But oh. Once again, I couldn't find their fucking names. Yeah, it's hard. Especially when they were born back then. Mm-hmm. You know their fucking occupations, but can't tell me if his name's Harold or what. And one article that I found, it said that he was one of seven children born to the Christie family. But it didn't say if he was the middle child, the oldest, the youngest, sort of here, sort of there. Didn't tell me where. Yeah. I also found a few things... A few things that claimed that his father was highly abusive to all the children in the family. Okay. Uh, and enjoyed beating them. There was really nothing that I found about his mother, and perhaps she was abusive, or maybe she was a victim of her husband's deadly game of abuse. So Don't know. That could have been. Because, you know, it's that time where you didn't bail. Yeah. So John was a good student. However, he earned himself... Uh, he was a good student. Oh, despite everything else, anyway, really good student. And he earned himself a scholarship to Halifax Secondary School, okay. which was basically a school for very bright children. Okay, which is common in our careers. John excelled at math as well as uh, any work that required attention to detail. He also sang in the choir and became a scout. However, there was a darkness brewing within him. That would begin to take shape as he grew into adulthood. Wow. He left school in 1913. He took a little trip and became an assistant projectionist. 1813. Or 18. Yeah, 1813. Uh, something like that. I'm always late. You kind of are. By the time he hit puberty, he began to associate sex with death and violence. He couldn't get a hard on. Unless he was in complete control, which rendered him basically impotent. Impotent. Uh-huh. He was an impotent man. That he was. His first... I put a few minutes, so it's supposed to be not that. Okay, apparently hooked on phonics. Didn't work for you. No shit. His first a few attempts at sex as a, uh, were as an adolescent. Okay. Since he couldn't get an erection... It earned him the horrible nicknames of No Dick Reggie. I think your dog needs to go out, cause, so I'm going to let her out. can't I'll do let it, her Christy. Out. Thank you. He was also a hypochondriac. He often faked illnesses in order to get attention that he so much wanted and needed. He was also known to have fits where he was hysterical as well, seeming to lose his mind. I can already see this unfolding and the reasons why this guy did what he did. Think about it. He has an abusive background. The kids at school, his peers are all making fun of him. He needs to fake being sick to get attention as well. Right. It also makes me wonder what actually formed his link between sex, death, and violence. Yeah, that's what I was wondering. I speculate that he may have been the victim of molestation as a child. Or been witness to acts of violence in regards to sex that helped him develop that yeah, twisted that could be. link between sex, death, and violence. Right. That could be. But there has to be a catalyst for this, Yeah, right? there has to be. Because there's no reason why somebody would link sex and violence together without that right. yeah, help witnessing it. Yeah. 
So as a young adult, he went on to join the military as a signal man. Okay. And a signal man was a person who communicated through visual signs such as flashing a lamp. Think Morse code. Oh, okay. To other troops. He also developed a taste for prostitutes. Don't you all? I don't have a taste for them. They taste horrible. <laughs> I don't eat them. Especially with, without salt and pepper. You know what? It was a couple episodes ago. You said that you have a tendency to eat all the women. So. <laughs> Ask your mom. He was released from duty after coming into contact with mustard gas. Wow. He claimed to have been blinded by the mustard gas and actually went three years without speaking, claiming that he had gone mute. So just writing his messages, I'm mute. His wow. medical records, however, don't show that he was actually blinded by the mustard gas, nor was he actually mute. He wasn't blinded by the gas. <laughs> Wrapped up like a douche, another roamer in the Deuce! Night. I know, but I like saying douche. I know, I do too. This was yet another attempt to get attention. He was released from duty and sent home with 20% disability. When he returned home, he kept seeking out hookers in order to have sex. Those seemed to be the only ones that would let him take control, complete control, after all. So he married 22-year-old Ethel Watt Waddington. Although he was married... He kept going to see hookers because with Ethel, he was impotent. Couldn't get up for her, right? Because she's not going to say smack me around and be in control and be abusive. Yeah, that was frowned upon back then. Yeah. So, of course, the rumor mill had started with the neighbors. And it was rumored that Ethel only stayed with him out of fear. With him out of fear. All the neighbors knew that he was, gonna, that he was going to see prostitutes and, that, and not staying home with his wife. He's out seeking other And he's abusive. Oh, yeah. They all know this. Yeah. You know, it's small communities. This marriage was dis dysfunctional at best. Uh, and it only lasted four years before John moved to London. Mm -hmm. And Ethel went to live with her relatives. Okay. And here we see a few things happening. The neighbors probably hear him fighting and yelling. Mm -hmm. John has that need to be in control. And obviously... Be in control, and that part. Oh, John has the need to be in control, and that part is, ob uh, is obvious. And I speculate that he was abusive to Ethel. So, oh, as well, uh, being abusive to her as a way to keep control of her. And based on what I know so far, I think that when he would go and seek out prostitutes, that was his form of catharsis. That's how he kind of got off, right? Right. John and Ethel would fight. The violence would give would give him an erection, and then he'd go out and seek a, out a hooker to have his needs sated. Right. His needs seemed to grow stronger as he got older. The first kill that John Christie admitted to committing was that of Ruth Ruth First, F U E R S D. We're okay. gonna go with first on that. He strangled, her during, he strangled her during sex in August of 1943. In 1944, he would claim his next victim. It was a co-worker by the name of Muriel, Muriel, Muriel Amelia Edie. What was her last name? Edie, E-A-D-Y. Oh. 
Gonna be all right there. That's the last part of this fucking cough. Yeah, it's not as bad as it has been. No, it's getting better. He lured her to his home with a promise uh, of being able to cure her bronchitis with his, quote, special mixture. The special mixture contained domestic gas, which has carbon monoxide in it. Once Muriel passed out, John choked her to death and had sex with her dead body. Oh, yeah, okay. Well, he buried both uh, First and Edie in the garden that was at his apartment complex and meant for the residents to share the community garden. Okay. So he moved on to more victims, of course. Let's talk about the murders of Beryl and Geraldine Evans. Yeah, this is the one that caught my attention. Timothy Evans and his pregnant wife, Beryl, moved into the top floor apartment of 10 Rillington Place in April of 1948. Well, on October 10th, Beryl gave birth to their daughter, who they named Geraldine. In November of 1949, Beryl Evans found out that she was pregnant again, but they were kind of afraid that they couldn't afford a, another child. Mm-hmm. Well, Evans later told the police that Christy, that Christy had promised the couple that he could abort the baby because abortion was illegal. But it says that right. later on, but um, we'll get to that. I just want to yeah. you know, a turd in the, in the machine. On, October, on November 8th, Christy used his, quote, special gas to incapacitate Beryl, and he strangled her and raped her dead body. Oh, my God. When Evans returned from work, we're talking about Tim, the man, that night, Chrissy told him that Beryl had died during the procedure and that they'd have to hide the body because, like I said, abortion was illegal in England at the time. Mm-hmm. Christy then convinced Evans to stay with relatives uh, out in Wales, England, and leave Geraldine in his care and take care of the girl. Evans later said when he returned to the apartment several several times to ask about Geraldine, Christy refused to let him see her, see his daughter. Okay. Which for me, if somebody did that, I, number one, wouldn't leave my daughter behind, but number two, I'd be calling the fucking cops. Yeah, I was going to say, why would he leave his daughter behind? Yeah, that's, it's creepy. For some man to take care of. Yeah. Yeah. On November 30th of 1949, Evans went to the police in Mathire, M-E-R-T-H-Y-R. Okay. Or Mether? Mether Tideville? Get real fucking names for your towns, for fuck's sakes. And said that he'd accidentally killed Beryl by giving her something contained in a bottle that a man had given them to help abort the unborn baby. And then disposed of her body in a sewer drain. He told the police that after arranging for Geraldine to be looked after, he left for Wales. Took off to Wales. When the police examined the drain outside the front of the building, however, they found nothing. And they discovered that the manhole cover actually required a combination of about three officers to even pry it up. It was heavy as fuck. Wow. So when they questioned Evans again, he said that Christie had offered to provide an abortion for Beryl. Okay. Okay. So Evans returned home from work to find Beryl dead. Right. He said Christie then disposed of the body and made arrangements uh, for some people to look after Geraldine while Evans laid low. That's his news story. That's what Timothy's saying. Yeah, that's what Timothy's saying. That's what he's saying. Okay. 
Gotta take it off, huh? That's right. It's messing up my hair. Yeah, that's why. <laughs> hey, a drink. Yeah. Uh, so during the search of 10 uh, Rillington Place on December 2nd of 49, the police found the bodies of Beryl and Geraldine. Evans hidden. Oh, yeah, they found uh, Beryl and Geraldine. They were, they were hidden in the wash house in the back of the garden. Both had been strangled. When Evans was shown the clothing taken from the body of his wife and his child, he also asked uh, whether he was res- he was asked if he was responsible for his death. Oh, okay. For their deaths. If he himself was. Right. Like, hey, did you kill your wife and your fucking daughter? Oh, they asked him. Okay. Yeah. I thought you, you meant know, he asked fucker. them. So this was according to Evans, by the way, what his statement was. This was the first time that he was informed that his baby daughter had been killed and Evans said yes that he was responsible for it right then he confessed to having strangled Beryl during an argument over debts and strangled Geraldine two days later after which he left for Wales yeah why he's confessing this stuff is still just makes me shake, shake my head and go what the fuck oh okay This confession, along with other contradictory statements Evans made during the police interrogation, is often cited as proof of his guilt. Although, some say his interrogation was worded by the investigating officers and carried out over the course of a late evening and early morning hours to the physical and emotional detriment of Evans. So basically, forced him into it. Yeah, coerced. I can see where that bullshit happens, yeah. Yeah. So Evans later recanted his testimony, and the case went to trial, which began on January 11th of 1950. Okay. Christie was a key witness for the prosecution. Of course he was. Which also fits into, well, we'll get to my thought on that in a second, and was instrumental uh, in Evans being found guilty two days later. The jury took only 40 minutes to come to the decision. but no cigar. After a failed appeal in, on February 20th, Evans was hanged on March 9th of 1950. I want to point out that it only took 40 minutes. Still doesn't beat the 4.5 minutes of Amelia Dyer. Or the 90 seconds for each count on yes. Marcel Patois. That Patois one was fucking epic. I know. So what we're seeing right here, though, is we're seeing where the actual killer is injecting himself into the investigation in one way or another. Yes, that's how we become, are. And that's very typical of a lot of serial killers yes, to inject is. themselves into the investigation. Yes. And they say that is one of the biggest red flags with a police officer. Yeah, to inject yourself in. Yeah. So the murders after the conviction of, Tiv- uh, of Timothy Evans, Christie was fired from his job from the post office. Uh, post office savings bank. Okay, whatever. Which he had held for the previous four years. So he's a wow. postman and shit like that, right? Uh, due to the disclosure of his previous criminal offenses at Evans' trial. He sank into a deep depression, lost about 28, 30 pounds. Wow. And he remained unemployed until August of 1950 when he found a clerical position with the British Road Transportation Service. Hmm. Oh, God. <clears throat> 
ODOT, but in merry, <laughs> in, in merry old England, jolly old England. Yeah, BDOT. He stayed there until December 6th of 1952 when he suddenly resigned. Just said, adios, pachachos. Chrissy claimed that his boss... Oh, Chrissy claimed to his boss and to his neighbors that he had found a job with better prospects in Sheffield and that he, he'd be leaving London to move there with his wife early, next, early in the new year. Okay. When his wife disappeared, he claimed that she had already moved and he'd be following her real soon. Makes sense. Yeah, wife said, I'm going to go live there first, motherfucker. Well, no, I've seen that before, actually. Yeah, it's nothing unusual. No. In fact, Christy murdered his wife in the bed on the morning of December 14th of 1952. Of course he did. She was last seen alive two days earlier. The day after he murdered his wife, he altered the date of a letter she had written on the 10th to the 15th, explaining that Ethel had no envelopes, so she sent the letter from her work. On December 16th, he took his wife's wedding ring to the jewelry shop and he sold it. A week after that, he sold her watch and her wedding bands. He kept writing letters to her sister in Sheffield up to early January, claiming that rheumatism had prevented her from writing. She got the rheumatiz. Okay. Really, she has the I'm dead and can't write because I'm dead. The, the dead-itis. The dead-itis. On January 8th of 53, Christie sold most of his furniture. He kept three chairs, a kitchen table, and a mattress to sleep on. On February 2nd, he forged his wife's signature on her bank account and emptied it out. I'm surprised it took him that long. Yeah, me too, actually. actually. There we go. After early February, Christie no longer bothered to answer the letters from relatives asking about his wife. Okay. So I'm not even writing back to these fuckers. Yeah. Between January 19th and March 6th of 53, Christie murdered three more women. Uh-huh. He invited back to his place. She invited him back, killed him. Kathleen Mahoney from Southampton, Rita Nelson, and Hectoria? H-A-C-T-O-R-I-A? Hectorina? Whatever. McLeanne. Christy claimed that McLeanne had wandered off and kept up the presence for two weeks. The pretense for two weeks. She just wandered off. Asking her boyfriend, Alex Baker, how she was. Hmm. Yeah, just, hey, how's she doing? Baker presumed she no, had gone. she was dead. Yeah. Baker presumed that she had gone back to her native Scotland by the lock with Nessie. Just say to be with Nessie. To be with Nessie. So the cops figure all this shit out, right? Right. <laughs> About fucking time. Christy moved out of 10 Rillington Place on March 20th, 1953. Um, he, had, he defrauded a couple who took up residence by taking seven pounds from them. Although he wasn't, he wasn't authorized by the landlord of the property to do so. Okay. So he tried to sublease his apartment. Okay. They were forced to move out within 24 hours. 
The day he left Rellington Place, Christie booked a room at the King's Cross Roten Houses. She's eating the food off hey. the plate. Sorry. It's okay. Under his real name and address. So he books a, new, a room over at King's Cross under his real name and his real address. And his address. He asked for seven nights, but only stayed four, leaving on March 24th of 53. A few days later, a new tenant discovered the bodies hidden in the wallpapered, over, covered over, coal cellar in the kitchen. Of that room. Of that room, of his apartment. Holy fucking. So pathology tests later showed carbon monoxide in their bodies. He call, So this new tenant, he calls the police and a nationwide manhunt happens. They're yeah, looking for him. And that's on think. March 25th. They're like, we're going to find this motherfucker. Three days later, Christie called the news of the world and arranged to meet a reporter, offering an exclusive interview. He said he'd allow himself to be handed over to the police in exchange for being able to do the interview. Okay. Fair enough, right? The meeting never took place, though, because Christie was scared. I see. That's what the Carsons did. Uh-huh. He was scared off by the arrival of two cops as he waited to meet the reporter. So she sees these cops show up. He's all, I'm gone. Yeah, forget it. I don't want to be arrested. Fuck <coughs> <coughs> me running. After he left Rotown House, Christy wandered all over London, sleeping on park benches at night. He searched, he searched for him. Oh, I'm sorry. The search for him ended on the morning of March 31st when he was arrested near the embankment at Putney Bridge after being challenged challenged? After being challenged about his identity by a cop. So a cop said, Hey, who are you? You look like this Christie dude. He said, No, my name is um Bill. Bill Smith. Was he on the River Thames? He could have been on the Thames. When he asked what his name and address was, he said John Waddington, thirty five Westbourne Grove. He was then asked to remove his hat, and the policeman recognized him and asked, You're Christy, aren't you? Christy confirmed that he was. He said, Yep, yeah, busted me, motherfucker. Yeah. He was arrested and had with him his, identity, his ID card, a ration book, I don't know what that is, his union card, an ambulance badge, and an old newspaper clipping about the... Oh, about what had happened to Timothy Evans. I believe a ration card is, don't quote me, because remember during the war and shortly after, because that's right after the war, um, they had rations still where they had to go get food oh. daily. From, well, that's fucked up. Yeah. They called them daily rations. I believe that's what they are, but don't quote no, me. No, you might be right. Who knows? So the next day he was charged with his wife's murder. On April 15th, he was charged with murdering the three hookers that they had found. Right. While in prison, Christie confessed to murdering all the women found in the cellar, as well as Beryl Evans. He never admitted to killing Geraldine, though. Wow. He was interviewed after the trial by John Scott Henderson. It says QC. I don't know what the fuck that means. Anyway. Um, Esquire, I think. QC is Esquire? I think it. Yeah. That's fucking 
Okay. Or or something to do with the police, something like that. Well, he was the recorder of Portsmouth. I think that reporter, but okay. Uh, who had been placed in charge of the inquiry. Oh, okay. Into the case by David Maxwell Fife, the serving home secretary. Okay. Christie's trial began on June 22nd of 53 in the same court where Evans had been tried. He was on trial solely for the murder of his wife. Christie pled insanity and claimed to have poor memory of the events. Couldn't remember, right? I can't remember shit that happened. The jury rejected his plea after 22 minutes and found him guilty of murdering his wife. Wow. 22 minutes. They're like, motherfucker's guilty. Yeah, dude. No, no. On June 29th, Christie said that he would not appeal against the death sentence. Fife said on July 13th that he would not grant a reprieve because there was no physical or psychological grounds for doing so. Wow. This is some MPs, but I don't know what the fuck MPs mean. Anyway. Members of Parliament. Parliament. Duh. I I knew that. I had to look that up. Actually, as soon as you tilted your head and went, wait a minute, that's members of parliament. Some members of parliament tried to postpone the execution so that Christie could talk more about the earlier murders, but Maxwell Five refused to grant it. Christie himself refused in the final days of his life to meet with members of parliament in his cell. He was hanged by Albert Pierpoint at Pentonville prison on the <laughs> same gallows. That's a lot of peas. It is. That's a lot of pee-pee. But he was hanging on the, hung on the same gallows as Timothy Evans. Yeah, this one appealed to me because another guy had hung for his crime. Yeah, and it's fucking just... It's fucked up. Yeah. You know, but he did what typical serial killers do. He injected himself. Yeah. Became a key witness, so he's that yeah. important. Not and just a witness. Place the blame on somebody else. And that's what really caught my attention yeah. was that instead of just being, hey, he was a witness for you know for right. the prosecution. This dude's a key witness, so you know he is chirping like a fucking bird. Like a big ass bird. Like a big bird. Yeah. You yeah, know? he is crowing like a motherfucker. Right. And, I, of course, I don't buy the fucking insanity plea either. Not at I all. That, <laughs> not crazy. He's a killer. He's not fucking. Yeah, his actions showed that he wasn't. Mm-hmm. I mean, the way he deceived them and got them to convict another man for his crime. Wallpapering over the coal yeah, bin. Yeah, he knew he was wrong. He knew what was up with that. Yeah. What was up, chicken butt? He knew. Yeah. You have anything you want to add to this? No, he was just a sick bastard. We're ending it right on time, too. Yeah. It's 4, 4.54. 4.54. All right. We want to wish you guys a very Merry Christmas for tomorrow. Merry Christmas to I'm, you. I'm hoping that Santa Claus comes and visits you all and that you hear the clip-clop of... Clickety-clock. Clickety-clock. Of reindeer droppings. <laughs> yeah, I didn't see that one, huh? Don't worry. It'll land on you. You won't see he that He knows either. when you're sleeping, and he knows when you're awake. That is like a stalker That's what song. He's a stalker. <laughs> yeah. That's why I presume we're going to be featuring Santa Claus on here. Because, <laughs> yeah. And then he was watching people while they were sleeping and when they were awake, hiding That's in their right. walls. <laughs> hiding in their walls like 
Daniel LaPlante. That's right, creepy-ass motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> I'm always bad. I'm never good. So be evil for goodness sake. Yeah, you are always on the naughty list. I am. Probably since you were about two. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. <laughs> Got the devil in me. Yeah. I was three when I started being a bitch, my mama said. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Remember, you can send us an email at BrutalNation at TwistedBlueLLC.com. Check out the website at www.TwistedBlueLLC.com. Click on that Amazon link. It helps out the show. doesn't cost you anything extra. It's a nice thing to do. If you want to sponsor the show in any way, go to our Patreon page. Click on that link and give us a hand. It helps out the show. You know, yeah. it's just a nice thing to do. There's quizzes and stuff and get ready because we're going to about ready to give giveaways away. Damn, it's a big fart. The fuck is that? I don't know. Actually, it's like a low flying plane, but I live quite a ways from the airport. I don't know what the hell that is. It's a big rumble. I was going to say that is not a fighter jet, <coughs> but it did sound like a low ass plane. We're going to see a fireball pretty no shit. soon. Pull up, pilot. Pull up. Don't crash into my house. No shit. Check us out on... Well, and just look for us wherever you get your, your blogs yeah, from. That's the easiest way to put it. We use uh, Medium and Crime Beat on Medium. That's what we use personally. Yeah, we Good use service. a couple other ones too, but yeah. This show's copyrighted 2021 by Twisted Blue LLC. All rights are reserved. And guess what, boys and girls? We'll talk to you guys next week. Merry Christmas, y'all. And we'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody.